Hello, welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky. Sorry the upload schedule has been a little erratic lately. November's been quite a busy month with a couple of people visiting in from out of town and a few things leading up towards my work schedule being all over the place, but at the very least I have a good idea about what my next couple of episodes are going to be and how the rest of December is going to be filling in, especially when we're going to be getting into that festive season as well as the end of the fall 2023 season. With a couple of things that I think about it in between Castlevania and Scott Pilgrim and Pluto and a couple of the movies that I was not able to see inside of theaters to kind of round out the year and then trying to figure out what essentially is going to be my favorite shows of the year. But that's something I can honestly like hold off until like say the new year and try to get something at least done in the meantime. But in terms of the news that has come out over the past couple of weeks, we do have at least a little bit of an optimistic conclusion for Zombie 100 since we finally have the opportunity to know when the final three episodes are going to be airing and it's going to be a consecutive binge on December 25th for those to be airing on Out in the East, on Out in the West, whereas Japan, based on the time change, is going to be getting that back on December 26th, but that's beside the point, considering that even though they had an incredibly trialistic production, especially leading into it being their first project as Studio Pine, it's definitely been getting a little bit of a reminder, especially with all of the trials and tribulations that everybody inside of MAPPA has been going through with the second half of Jujutsu Kaisen's second season, considering that basically everything that we have heard since the beginning of the Shibuya incident arc has just been nothing but negative press, nothing but negative outlooks, energies, and scenarios that have just been coming out of every single animator that has been publicly telling people about the specific horrific cuts and episodes that they've been having to work on to try and just get Jujutsu Kaisen's second season out the door by the end of the season, which unfortunately isn't something that any of the producers or anybody inside of the committee wants to let happen and not have something along the lines of, say, another ZOM 100 scenario go through onto one of the most popular shonen currently running today. I mean, considering that the Blu-rays for the second half have already been selling well, the pre-orders have been numbering in, I think, over 5,600, which is more than enough to cover the baseline of what they've been able to go through and accomplish. But considering how shitty the production cycle has been over MAPPA's past couple of shows, for all the productions that they've been able to go through and to see that Jujutsu Kaisen was going to be the one to feel the brunt of... The hurt and the crunch is definitely unfortunate for that, considering that I was extremely excited with how well-received and how much I enjoyed the first season. But basically, the basis of what happened and why the schedule got so fucked in the first place was because, for better or worse, it was Chainsaw Man. Considering that normally you get a production committee and a table to give you the funds in order to produce a project that you were going to be making outside of a studio, but considering a kind of loophole that Otsuka, who is the CEO of MAPPA, was able to do is that, hey, if MAPPA near 100% covers all of the cost, then we don't have to waste time and resources to go through and find a production committee to go through and help us fund our own project when we can just do that ourselves. The good news is that if it's successful, all of that goes to the studio. The bad news is that because of how fucking hungry Otsuka is to make all these projects as quickly as possible, he ended up just putting Chainsaw Man in the middle of other production cycles and shows just without hesitation and without going through. Considering that basically, 
that Jujutsu Kaisen Zero film was made in just over four months, which is insane in the middle of everything else that was going around. And then, of course, that means that's going to be a handful of months between Jujutsu Kaisen Zero and Chainsaw Man to take away from the production and the resources and the time and the animators that you're going to be needing for whichever show, unfortunately, that was going to get the shorter end of the stick. And I guess in this case, the one that ended up getting the majority of the resources taken away, especially because of the movie and Chainsaw Man, was in this case Jujutsu Kaisen. So I legitimately don't know if they're going to be getting it done by the end of the month. I honestly wouldn't care if they took a delay in the same deal as on 100 did, but the problem is that the committee, as well as a lot of the producers at MAPPA, are not going to let that happen, and they are going to try and get this out the door by the end of the season, which is incredibly fucking concerning, and I just don't necessarily know how it's going to go through from here, considering that if nothing is learned and if nothing is taken from this where it's just kind of like, oh, this is just another bump in the road where it's like, hey... If Otsuka is this passionate about getting Chainsaw Man a full adaptation, then odds are he's just going to do this entire thing again with the second season. And once again, a handful of productions are going to be footing the bill as to how much work and how much stress is going to be put underneath these animators and people working at MAPPA. So not necessarily the best outlook, especially for one of the biggest shonen coming out over the past couple of years. Uh, but besides that, in terms of a handful of manga adaptations, as well as a few things that ended up getting on the New York Public Library's bestseller list for 2023, we ended up getting uh, Akane Banashi, which is more of a Rakugo manga that's been coming out over the past couple of years, uh, Loves in Sight, The Moon on a Rainy Night, and The Summer Hikaru Died, which is basically a mix between a couple of high school rom-coms, as well as a little bit more of a melancholy and dramatic roles, especially with uh, The Summer Hikari Died. So a couple of those were able to go through and get on the list, and then in terms of another manga that's honestly closer to the ending than we would have expected, Call of the Night is going to get concluded at its 200th chapter, and this has basically surprisingly been hard set considering that we're already in the 190s. This is just, it, it is kind of crazy. I, it's not going to be over by the end of this year, but the fact that in January of next year, we're going to have this conclusion. You know, if there's no delays, it's going to be a January 10th finale. So considering that this is only going to be a four-year run, as the manga ended up starting in August 2019, as well as a very well-received anime adaptation that ended up coming out back in 2022, with how the manga was going, honestly, it's been a really fun... Uh, read as well as a great experience to kind of see but the fact that less than a year after I end up getting into this we're already going to be reaching conclusion is kind of a sad and short amount of time that I was able to go through and experience this manga but to be fair I would much rather it end on a conclusion that it is satisfied with than drag it out any much longer than it needs to be and then currently one of the manga that I'm reading right now which is honestly Shonen Jump's currently best running romance which is Blue Box, and it is going to be getting an anime adaptation that'll be coming out either towards the end of next year or the beginning of 2025. And to be fair with what I've been reading so far, it's going to be interesting to see how far they go, because if they only do 12 episodes, it'll be kind of a unsatisfying conclusion as to where exactly everybody is in the sense of the story, but... 
considering that it is a Shonen Jump property, I would imagine that they'll be able to go through and have, I would guess, a double core 24-25 episode run, so it would actually be able to go through and cover the majority of the arcs that happens at the beginning of the story towards getting into a point inside of Blue Box that's a lot more interesting and a lot more conclusive in a way where all the relationships inside the story starts picking up the pace a bit. So I'm definitely glad to see that we have been getting a relatively early call to adaptation with this, considering that I believe we're only about 120 chapters in, so just a little over two years after this was able to make its debut, and name itself as to one of the better currently running romance manga out there, it's honestly better to me, considering that it's also a romance sports, which, whenever that's the case, it's always been something that really hits a lot better whenever it combines, because I do love competition in terms of relationships as well as it is towards sport in general. So, considering that I'll be able to get something equivalent to Baby Steps, but one that's going to be getting a modern adaptation, definitely excited to see where this goes towards maybe the end of next year. Now, I don't really know what to think about this one, considering that a lot of the reveals that we ended up getting over the past couple of weeks came out at Anime NYC, and one of the biggest ones that they ended up going through and releasing was that which studio is going to be doing a second season of The Great Pretender. Now, I believe when I was going on about probably my favorite shows of the previous year, now honestly, if I remember what I was thinking about this show since it ended up coming out back in 2020, my thoughts on the show were the vast majority of it was an incredibly fun and witty crime thriller that they were able to go through and have with the same kind of uh, veneer and polish and quality as like an Ocean's Eleven style uh, crime cape. But the conclusion, the two-part conclusion, just kind of didn't know what it wanted to do. It was the largest heist that they had in scale, but the fact that they spent the majority of the time going through the emotions of specific characters inside of the show really felt disingenuous to me because it was better that we were able to get the backstory of the dashing blonde, but the fact that our main character got bamboozled and shafted two times over the course of the same show, and they still played it off as serious and a joke and something that isn't supposed to be taken too much at the same time, completely and utterly throws all of my preconceived notions about those relationships, like, out the fucking window. Because now, it seems that we are going to be getting a post, so a sequel, but it's going to be about Dorothy. And Dorothy should have, should have died, honestly. It's, if that was the entire setup and a way to, like, tell the blonde dude, it's like, hey, your actions have consequences. Y you cannot go into this line of work without thinking about paying the ultimate price, considering I know it gives you more thrills than anything else in your life, but if you decide to prioritize one thing over another and you fuck up and you lose that, you deserve to lose that forever. That is how the line of work goes, and that's where the job ultimately gets you. But the fact that they gave about half an arc to him supposedly losing her, and the fact that she was still alive, 
and the fact that the ring that he tossed into the ocean also made it to her on this random fucking island in the middle of nowhere, probably near the Philippines, just completely takes away everything else that was going through. If, I'm pretty sure I said this before, if the main character's mom was still alive through some way and they could have just hand waved it being like, oh yeah, well, I mean, he did put me in the hospital due to stress and he did come to visit me, but just the way that all of these crime capers and all of this energy was really able to get me back into the swing of things and like help me recover. And if she just was alive for our main character, considering that's how much of a joke they really do think all of these consequences bring, then that's, if, if Dorothy's alive, then sure, his mom should be alive and she could just bring it about and just say like, oh yeah, no, well, your father, he's such a good con artist and he taught me how to be a con artist, so now we're a family of con artists. And honestly, if that was the case, that would have been the best ending the show could have gotten. But instead, it's kind of like, hey, we're gonna do the same thing we did to the main character, but instead of him being on his own learning a trade and like recovering and like trying to become a better person it's kind of like now nah, we're gonna just drag you back into it and we're just going to like drag all your family values through the mud and we're going to laugh at you for being this concerned about what people think of you and what the consequences should be and it was just such a asinine way to conclude that kind of a story that whatever heist they were able to conclude at the end of the day mattered a lot less because they just did not give a shit about any of the rest of it because if they didn't give a shit in the first place that would have been totally fine but because they pretended to give a shit they the great pretenders pretended to give a shit about any of the emotional stakes and the scenarios that we, they put their characters through and they fucking pretended to care then why did they waste our time so much and why did it take so much out of the story i i don't know it's I have complicated feelings about this series because I loved the first three arcs of it, but I'm curious to see... I'm going to watch it, for better or worse. I'm going to see what garbage they're going to be able to go through bringing Dorothy back, but it's just... I don't know. I don't really know what to think about leading in towards the rest of it, other than, I mean... The, the characters themselves are colorful, and I like the dynamics and if they're able to go through and have a couple of new and intricate and creative heists, then that's totally fine with me. And the final release date that we ended up getting over the past couple of weeks is Mario Okada's Maboroshi. It's going to be very similar to Drifting Home in the same way that it is just going to be a straight Netflix release rather than a theatrical run, which is, I guess I'm fine with. It's definitely seeming like it's going in the same vein as the director for Penguin Highway and, well, I guess the same deal Drifting Home, because a lot of the times Mario Kata was able to get an easy run, or an easy theatrical run in the West, but if, I guess, because Netflix was a part of the production committee, then they were the ones that just didn't want any of this to go to theaters, and they just wanted it to stream on their service, then that's totally fine too, because... Uh, Mabaroshi, the other title that it was able to go through, at least at the time of release when it was teased, uh, was called Alice and Teresa's Illusionary Factory. And now it's just Mabaroshi, which is 
I, a little simpler, but then also not as notable. I don't necessarily know how it's going to go. Mario Kata, for a lot of the stuff that she's done, uh, between Makia Promise Flower Blooms, between Anohana, just a lot of the stuff is very melodramatic, and there are moments in each of her works that definitely hit a lot harder for me and still makes me remember those series in particular. But then when it's dragged out towards an entire film, it's a lot more difficult to have that just be the sole driving force of the film. So it's kind of a mixed bag. I'm, I'm curious to see how that's going to go, considering that it's going to be releasing on January 15th on Netflix. But we'll just have to wait and see. Oh, that was a lot of news. Um, but I guess been getting back to the topic at hand for this week, it was just... I was curious as to why a lot of these were popping up on my feed, considering that I was going through a couple of new AMVs over the past uh, few visits, but I didn't know what the whole deal was behind a lot of AMV hells being recently posted up to YouTube, considering that I believe that there was only seven, plus zero, plus zero half, plus minis, and a lot of these other things, but I guess considering that they were able to go through and re-upload it on YouTube so they can at least get it out there, I was kind of glad to see that lead itself in and have the opportunity to go back and revisit it. And so most of that inspiration came from the fact that a lot of my inspiration and a lot of the things that ended up helping me get into anime in the first place were, surprisingly enough, AMVs. And I did note on them just a little bit into basically my history with anime and the rest of it back in one of the previous episodes. But with what they were able to accomplish and what the landscape of AMVs have been over the past 40 years has definitely been an interesting waxing and waning and as well as rebirths and valleys and flatlines and stagnation and just kind of all over the place, especially due to the platforms, due to different copyrights, due to expenses in technology. It's all just kind of thrown the entire art form and creation process into a loop. But at the very least, because there wasn't a lot of people for me to talk to about anime when I was getting into it, the most accessible outlook for me to go through and watch on YouTube back in early 2011 was in this case AMVs. So at the very least, I would like to go through and try to at least give a proper thanks to these multimedia projects and to kind of give a couple of recommendations and kind of show the history on how this was such a big part of the anime fandom leading into what it was becoming at the turn of the millennium and to what it currently is today. And so AMVs in particular are just very simple. They are anime music videos and they've been around technically for 40 years since the first anime uh, music video came back out in 1982 uh, with Jim Kaboshitis. And so he was basically using dual deck VCRs to make his own custom music video to what it was known as in the West as Star Blazers, but back in Japan, it was originally called Space Battleship Yamato. And so basically he took the most violent scenes inside of that anime and put it to the backdrop of Beatles' All You Need Is Love and essentially created just a very conflicting and contrasting video, but one that has not been seen before, especially when it was inside of that time where the 80s anime did exist uh, out in North America, but it was very, if you want to talk about niche, it was nicher than niche, and they were legitimately importing v VHS tapes 
from Japan through either pen pals or from other corporate entities undubbed and unsubbed in English. So just straight up old Japanese dubbed OAVs and series like back from the late 70s that they were finally able to go through and get their hands on over in the West. And they would just have like random meetings as well as just viewing parties. And then it wasn't until the more publicly available set of the VCR that they were able to go through and copy tapes and distribute them and acid wash subtitles onto most of them so you could actually get through and have people understand what was being said in a foreign language to go through and have that opportunity to distribute them to more and more people and to get more and more people invested so that at the turn of the 90s when basically a lot more of this technology was more affordable and more accessible more people had the opportunity to go through and watch anime and start becoming some of the first fans to lead into sci-fi conventions local theaters, and what would eventually become just anime-only conventions and be the, being the first of their time in the West. Because, like, back when you were trying to make AMVs in, at this point, you would legitimately need not only one expensive VCR, but two expensive VCRs, double-decked, to go through and try to splice in between these shows onto another empty VHS to try and get it and edit it, and it was so time-consuming at that point. And then, at the very end, you would have to dub the music on top of the tape to try and get this going and to see if you were able to properly, like, mesh together all the different pieces and then stick it into another VCR and then pray to God that everything lined up and it worked. And so it was in the mid to late 90s, once those... VCRs were becoming a lot more accessible and affordable, you could actually have people going through and making their own opportunities and making their own videos and their own sets towards the rest of it that they would then forward and distribute to other conventions as either opening credits and introductory films and then very much so to the actual AMV competitions that were being brought together in the 90s as it wasn't necessarily an art form, but it was a really lengthy and difficult process, especially when you were going through with the amount of time that you would have to consume to be passionate not only as much about anime, but to also have the proper talents and equipment to make these things in the first place. And so a good chunk of these AMVs were going through and trying to make their rounds at different conventions across North America before the 2000s hit, and then you finally ended up getting more opportunities to use computers to do the majority of the digital work for you and in so you wouldn't necessarily have to go through and grab the majority of the hardware yourself thankfully it was all getting centralized into one machine to be fair the majority of the first amvs that i would imagine a lot of people saw is that they would to fill out the rest of the space on the vhs tapes they would basically go and all of the fan copied and fan sub tapes that they would distribute would also have a random AMV at the end of them. So for the majority of the people that went through, it would be an AMV of a show that wasn't entirely similar to the one that they had just watched, but it was a potential for somebody to have their first exposure to AMVs and their first exposure to a show that odds are they would have never been able to find in the first place. So it did a lot of good job for distribution as well as trying to give people more ideas and more shows and more 
just content to go through and absorb and watch and distribute in of itself as it was a self-repeating cycle that would basically be churned by those of the passionate fan base. And so when we get to the 2000s where anime was more of a look down upon hobby, it was a, instead of a niche niche, it was just a niche, but it was still a little problematic as well as being a tad bit too geeky for the mainstream. And I would imagine a lot of people would have been getting bullied and looked down upon if you had any inkling or any idea that that was one of your major passions. But still, in the midst of all this, AMVs continue to thrive and continue to be created, especially with the same deal where you had Windows Movie Maker and you had all this free software that you would be able to go through and create your own videos and your own content for all the shows that you loved and enjoyed, and with a couple of your favorite songs mixed in between. And one of the most notable collaborations, as well as videos that ended up coming out in the 2000s, would be known as the AMV Hell franchise. And so these were ten... the first two AMV Hells were made back in 2004, and they were a collaboration between Xerix and SSG WNBDT, and they were able to go through and just throw shit posts back and forth at each other with random show and random audio clip uh, through AOL Messenger. And they just had so many of those that they thought, hey, uh, why don't we just do quick skit sketch comedy, a la to Robot Chicken before Robot Chicken was a thing, and go through and just make our own pieces and then just bring them down and put them into AMV competitions inside and across all of North America. And so they're able to go through and have a good opportunity to distribute those first two AMVs, which were about 10 minutes long each, to the point where so many people got invested and enjoyed them to such a degree that they were waiting on, well, where's AMV Hell 3? Like, what? where's the third one? We need the next one. And so over the course of a year... A lot of this stuff was, they were trying to figure out, it's like, oh, we wanted to make a movie out of this, but that would take so much goddamn time, it would just be so ridiculous. But there were so many people that were not only, hey, when's the next AMB Hell, and how would I be able to be a part of it? And so they were able to go through and collect, set like, over 100 clips from 60 different editors and 60 different uh, fans at the time to come together and make over an hour-long AMV Hell compilation project. It didn't necessarily have the same success as the first two did, considering that it was very slipshod and it was very like, hey, we're trying to make this as long as we can, so send whatever clips you got. And so after they were able to go through and do that, they ended up posting, you know, more of the adult videos, like the the ones that they couldn't necessarily send to conventions back in AMV Hell Zero, which is what they called it. But what they decided to do for the fourth AMV Hell, was that they would open to be open to all kinds of submissions and recommendations, and but they would be able to have so many different pieces to work with that they could actually curate and collect and pin the ones that actually worked and actually were made better. And so even after they had a thousand entries, it was a lot easier to go through and curate and have it like a more direct and a more streamlined vision as to what they wanted it to be because they had so much more content to use. And so at that point, back in September 2007, they were able to put out AMB Hell 4, which to me, I think was the first AMB I technically watched because it wasn't me that I was going around uh, like searching YouTube at the time. Uh, it was definitely a buddy of mine who like showed me this ran these random clips and was like, oh, look at all these car uh, like North American cartoons and uh, 
you know, it's kind of funny, but it's like really quick and a lot of jokes that I don't get for audio clips and movies and references that are completely going over my head and it was just something that didn't necessarily turn me away from it, but it was kind of something that I wasn't at the time able to appreciate because I was only 12 and I had no idea what any of this was about at all. But the fact that they were able to go through and not necessarily with the original two, but have this pushed all the way to 2014 and have this be like a 10 year long endeavor for the conversion and distribution of different AMVs for that point. It was definitely something that could not be understated as to how important it was to that specific community whenever that kind of project was able to go through and release when they had the proper time and effort and people to make it happen. So even though it wasn't something that was really big to me or at that much of an inspiration, it was definitely something that I wanted to recommend and honestly go through. And probably if I had to recommend anyone, just go to AMV Hell 4 or the motion AMV Hell 3, the motion picture 2, AMV 4 Hell for the last one it's i don't know <laughs> it's probably the better one to kind of like jump into even though it's over an hour long but still it's a it's a real blast and kind of a good snapshot at mid-2000s meme humor and to what everybody was incredibly interested back then especially when it came to the anime fandom and so i don't necessarily know where a golden age of amvs would be it would probably be at the earliest it would be 2004 and then at the latest it would probably be 2012 or 2013 before the adpocalypse or before the copyright strikes ended up happening considering that you had amb hell you had a widely distributable uh domain website which in this case was animemusicvideos.org where you could not only upload your own amvs but also download a few others on your computer so you could watch them anytime you wanted to. And so it was this perpetual cycle of continuously making content for all these new shows that were coming out whenever they could, because since it was the 2000s, uh, there was only so many shows that you could watch at the time and how long it ended up taking for a lot of these shows to come out to the West in the first place was also something that was a huge trial. But it was definitely some time in the pre-copyright era since the majority of the time, a lot of the copyright that people had to worry about was either, you know, Funimation or ADV or all these distribution companies in the West because they also had some of the rights towards it, but they thought of it as just free publicity. As long as it wasn't the only thing that people wanted to watch, they just assumed that it was like a really good opportunity to get more eyes on shows that they had licenses to and they would be able to go through and use it as free publicity. The music record labels did not see it that way, <laughs> considering that the majority of the time it was just full uncut songs of just this one piece and it's like, oh, great, so I can go over to animemusicvideos.org and then listen to this entire song without having to pay for it, like in the middle of the torrenting era towards the rest of it, either like with LimeWire or Kazaa or BitTorrent. <laughs> um, but it was just that time where the major record labels didn't necessarily crack down on them too hard. And so you had the free tools, you had increasing quality and hardware, you had all these shows that were finally getting licensed and distributed through uh, VHS and DVD and everything and all of this time to use the thing that you were passionate about to create these things on your own. And for me, of course, AMB Hell was technically the first one I saw, but the first handful of AMVs that I ended up personally watching were a lot of uh, card fights uh, from Cardcaptor Sakura. 
And so whenever she was uh, fighting a card, there was like about 15... <laughs> it was kind of crazy. There was about 15 different videos all to the backdrop of Hikaru Utada's Simple and Clean Remix, which, with to this case and to a lot of people, this was uh, the opening to the Kingdom Hearts games. Or at least the first... Kingdom Hearts 1 and Kingdom Hearts 1.5. It's I, I, I have not played enough of the Kingdom Hearts games to figure out the naming convention or the timeline. But the majority of the first AMVs was basically that combo. It was a Cardcaptor Sakura fight and then Simple and Clean as the backdrop to the music. And so a good core memory of when I was starting to get into those was just me in Kelowna. And I found these on my iPhone and was it an iPhone 3 or 3S? I think it was a 3S, and so I would find those and then watch them before I went to sleep because it was a really good song, and then I I hadn't seen any clips of Cardcaptor Sakura ever since I watched it on the Kids WB morning Saturday cartoon block, and then a little bit on YTV as well, but um, other than that, it was just years since I had seen like any clips or any shows from that, and I thought it was like a cool music video esque way to go back and revisit a lot of these uh, pieces. And so those kind of went away for a couple of months. And then for the first anime that I truly watched, knowing that it was... Did I know it was anime? I don't... Mm, I don't think it was because I, I went over this in, in another episode that the first anime technically that I fully watched was uh, Chrono Crusade. And the first couple of episodes I watched by spending Microsoft points on the Microsoft Store, and then watching that, uh, spending probably about fifteen to twenty dollars worth of Microsoft points, only to find out that the entire show was free on YouTube on the Funimation website. It's like, oh shit, uh, that's unfortunate. Um, so I went back, watched all of Chrono Crusade on YouTube for free, and towards the end of watching the last few videos, there were. Uh, Chrono Crusade AMVs done to the backdrop of what a lot of people heard at the time, uh, Evanescence. <laughs> Specifically, Wake Me Up Inside, which was very common and very towards the rest. I mean, like Nine Inch Nails, Evanescence, Linkin Park, like a lot of those bands were very synonymous to what a lot of people watching anime listened to at the time. And so it was a very common just overlap when the majority of AMVs came out, a lot of the times it was like those three bands. But then afterwards, those first AMVs that I watched of Chrono Crusade then of course recommended me to more AMVs and different shows and different songs and like different genres altogether towards the rest of it. To me, the first... Because whenever I look back... I do still have a playlist of a lot of AMVs and some of my favorites that are still on YouTube, and a lot of them track back to about 2011, uh, to where they were, to where and when they were made. And a lot of it's like 13 years ago, 12 years ago, 11 years ago. Daybreak is one of those AMVs that are probably going to be closest to my heart, considering that it was the first one that I really did love and appreciate even though I had not seen a single show set to the backdrop of, I believe it was Shattered by Age of Information. And it was like, good God, how many different shows? About like 
15 different shows towards the rest of it over the course of two and a half minutes. And it did a phenomenal job and I was, you know, an emotional teen and it was like, oh, this is so beautiful that, oh my goodness, this is like one of the best. And considering that now I have seen all of these shows towards the rest of it, it's definitely like a great thing to look back upon and go through and kind of, and see how far and how long this relationship has come as being an anime fan. And so it's definitely nice to go back and check every once in a while. But it was definitely the first one that went through, and it was beginning a trend where if I didn't have anybody to talk to about anime, especially in high school, which you really wanted to be selective about what you watched and listened to, um, then I could go through and try to figure out other ways to get recommendations, which a lot of this did come from just AMVs. If I liked the show or the clips from a specific AMV, then I would go and watch the show. Which this led me to Bungaku Shoujo, this led me to The Familiar to Zero, this led me to um, Mashiro Symphony. Not the greatest, mind you, but they did get me into the medium faster than anything else did. <sighs> and over the course of these 12 years, it's definitely been a way for me to consistently keep me updated, kind of see where the trends are, what shows are getting the most AMVs nowadays. Even though over the course of the 2010s, AMVs definitely started to lose steam considering that it was basically just the apocalypse and all the copyright takedowns and all of the re major le record labels making it incredibly difficult for you to post anything without it being, you know, licensed and not either demonetized or taken down. So there were a couple of years in the 2010s where it did start to lose a bit of steam considering how much more difficult it was. Even though it was easier to make AMVs, it was more difficult to keep them up on the larger sites uh, like YouTube as it was really gaining steam and it was the premier video sharing platform of the internet. But you still thankfully had a couple of other things on animemusicvideos.org to still keep that community alive. Which kind of leads us to the modern, or not necessarily modern, but kind of what AMVs have been to me around pre and post COVID. And it was back in the summer of 2019, Anime Revolution, where it was the first time I sat down and watched an entire two hour AMV uh, competition set list. And so they put out all of these AMVs over the course of two days to kind of just see what it was, and there was still audience interaction, considering that there was an opportunity to go through and mark down which ones you liked, what was your favorite, what was best comedy, what was best action, what was the people's choice. There were just a lot of ways for you to feel involved to get around and to watch a lot of this stuff. And that did bring me over to finding, like, probably my favorite rom-com AMV of the past couple of years, which is definitely Lower Your Expectations by, I can't remember if it was Milk Cat, Cat Milk, it was, it's been so difficult to find, especially going through either YouTube and they didn't end up uploading it on animemusicvideos.org. It's just incredibly difficult to try and get this one out, but they ended up winning the People's Choice back in 2019 because it was just not flashy, not like, it, it was well edited in terms of timing, but it was mostly just the perfect characters using the perfect shows, using the perfect song, and collaborating with the, and having them collaborate in the most effective way, and it just 
was like, oh shit, I haven't found a new AMV that I've loved in a while, and this is probably it. And so I was planning on doing the same thing next year, and then 2020 happened, and then couldn't necessarily do the same thing in 2021. Uh, and I was finally able to go through and now bring that into every con that I go to, which has just been going through and trying to figure out which is the best ones whenever it comes to AMVs and different competitions and trying to go through the rest of it. It's just that the last two that I've gone to, unfortunately, both have not had audience interaction, which just seems crazy. I understand that it would still take a lot of time because a lot of the submissions come in last minute and you would have to print off an obscene amount of ballots to try and get it to work and to try to get it to finish. But it's also kind of like, well, a lot of people aren't going to sit for now three hours and do just nothing in the meantime waiting for a specific video to come up. So it's just, I'm really hoping over the next couple of years that they do bring back just the minimum amount of effort there to have some audience interaction and experience so they can go through and have the opportunity to give their personal outlook on what was potentially the best of the bunch. Because thankfully, it does seem like AMVs are still well in a way making a comeback over the course of COVID, considering that I would imagine a lot of fans were kind of like, oh shit, I can just do Sony Vegas, oh shit, I can do Adobe Premiere, I've got all this time on my hands, I wouldn't be surprised at how much of a bump there was in AMV production over the course of 2020 and 2021, and there are still more AMVs now being made because of the easier access to that better software than have ever been able to been made before. Uh, in the entire history of AMVs. It's still difficult because the copyright is still around and still breaking kneecaps to just try to make sure that, sure, you can upload it, but you are not allowed to monetize or do anything of the sort. And it's just kind of like, okay, yeah, no, sure, just fucking take it. I don't care. I just want people to see this thing that I've made. And the kind of passion that me and a lot of other people have been able to go through and just distribute and spread the word about shows that are incredibly special to us and give that opportunity to not only polish off your editing chops, but just to kind of see if that's the kind of production that you would be interested in making in the future. And I'm definitely glad to see that even through all the trials that we went through inside of the 2010s, and giving us that opportunity in the early 2020s to go through and make those a reality, that more and more people are still finding the opportunity to get into editing and AMVs and through a lot of those opportunities to see if they can actually put their chops to the test and make something that they would be able to look back on fondly many years down the line. And if you're asking about if I would ever make <laughs> one, it's it's not necessarily something... Well, it is something that I've thought about. And I do have ideas, and there are specific shows, and there are specific songs that I feel would like go really well together, but it would be something that I would have to not only go out and acquire, but then mostly find the time to just edit back and forth and take many, many months outside of not only this podcast, but even now outside of work as that's been picking up as of late. So I do have ideas, do have a lot of things to go through. I mean, uh, fucking name by the Goo Goo Dolls. The fact that nobody has done name Goo Goo Dolls in the Your Name film is to me just complete mispotential. I do have one for the Wolfwalkers film made by Cartoon Saloon. Ashes, done by the Longest Johns, 
definitely in the lyrics feel like they could be connected very well together. And then probably another one that would go, that seems like it would be able to mesh well together, would be something akin to The Owl House uh, going along with the song Waking Up by Hillsburn. And it's kind of like the lyrics are antithetical, but the relationship that the song describes really does feel like it would fill out Amity's relationship or Lucy's Lumity's relation. But the lyrics themselves really feel like they would be able to adapt Lumity's relationship very well. And so it definitely seems like something that if I was going to go through, I would have the opportunity to at least start in one of those two and see where it goes. But outside of that... Um, if there are any AMVs that I would recommend over the past, I guess, 12 years that I've been able to go through and see, every single animagraphy video that Quill made between 2012 and 2015, so just animagraphy and the year, odds are you'll be able to find it. Those are probably some of the better ones going through the rest of it. The only major creative on YouTube that I still watch that actually has been making AMVs as of late Optional Objective has been doing a lot of good meme tag videos specifically, but then with that editing, they've been able to make an AMV recently on Cyberpunk Edgerunners, which is honestly one of my favorites, and then um, not close to the same caliber, but not quite, even though it's still a phenomenal AMV. Uh, that would also go towards Be Somebody, which is an AMV related to Ranking of Kings, which is also really good. Uh, when it comes down to editing shops, uh, just Funkin' Dandy, uh, done by, which is just a Space Dandy AMV, they definitely have, like, some of the best combos in terms of, uh, the editing that I was able to go through. Um, on top of editing, that would go between the AMV called Legacy. That's also really well. Another AMV called FYC is also, like, really good whenever it comes down to how the fuck was this dude able to edit this in particular. Um, so that's been definitely crazy. And then classics and AMVs that I've been able to go through, probably old ones that still live up to this day would be, there's an AMV that goes to the backdrop of uh, The Air in My Lungs. That's also a very good one. Uh, Loop on the Third with uh, Blood Oath. I believe it's Goemon's Blood Oath. Uh, that, somebody did an AMV that is phenomenal uh, down to that film. And then probably... If you had to ask me what I think my favorite AMV of all time is, uh, there was an AMV that was made about six years ago, and they ended up winning the Best in Show and Editor's Choice back at Anime Boston 2017. And it is an anime music video called Timeless. As it covers decades upon decades of content, and the evolution of what anime has become over the past several years and it's the same deal very simple editing but the way they're able to cut and meld things together was just incredibly seamless it's also done by they also put it to the backdrop of Avicii's Wake Me Up which is honestly one of my favorite songs so that ended up doing extremely well in my book and I don't know there's just so much out there either you can look it up on animemusicvideos.org, you can find quite a few that are being made today or made that are still up on YouTube, like even back in the 2000s. All of it's still there, all of it's readily available, and just the fact that something, this niche inside of a niche, 
that was able to make me more invested and more passionate about a medium that has already taken my heart was more than enough of a pleasant surprise to kind of help me bring myself into this medium in the first place. And I'm kind of glad to see how it's been able to lead me through and accompany me over the more than the past 12 years than any other audio-visual project has been able to do. So definitely glad you were able to stick around here. Odds are I'm going to be putting a lot more episodes uh, towards the start of December so I can get all of those out on time before the majority of the work hits and the majority of the previous family appointments that I'm going to be having set up leading to Christmas. It's going to be a lot of up and down, I'm going to be doing a lot of driving, doing a lot, a lot of pieces, so I'm going to kind of see what I'll be able to do. But at the very least, I've got something lined up for Attack on Titan, I've got something lined up for Scott Pilgrim, and I've got something lined up for the Owl House, and I'm really hoping that by the end of the year, I'll be able to go and line those up. So judging into January, I'll be able to give my honest thoughts about what a mixed bag of a season Fall 2023 is be, and leading into what is going to be my favorite pieces of media leading into 2023. Leading out of 2023. Cheers, have a good one.